Hi, this is Tanya Domi. Welcome to The Thought Project, recorded at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, fostering groundbreaking research and scholarship in the arts, social sciences, and sciences. In this space, we talk with faculty and doctoral students about the big thinking and big ideas generating cutting-edge research, informing New Yorkers and the world. This week's guest is Heath Brown, an associate professor of public policy at the Graduate Center and John Jay College of Criminal Justice at CUNY. He obtained his Ph.D. in public administration and public policy at the George Washington University and a master's degree at the Elliott School of International Affairs, also at GW. He is author of four books, three of which include Immigrants in Electoral Politics, Nonprofit Organizing in a Time of Demographic Change, Pay-to-Play Politics, How Money Defines American Democracy, and The Tea Party Divided, The Hidden Diversity of a Maturing Movement. Welcome back to The Thought Project, Heath Brown. It's great to be here. So we are uh, coming together after a week of uh, daily events happening since the Mueller report was delivered to the Attorney General last Friday afternoon. Uh, 48 hours later, Barr, the Attorney General, issued a four-page letter to Congress indicating that Mr. Mueller had not found that Trump campaign had taken part in a conspiracy with Russia to undermine the 2016 election. Barr also cleared the president of the United States of obstruction, a matter in which Mueller left undetermined. Uh, This is now a matter of intense debate, and uh, assertions have been made by the Obama former acting solicitor general, Neil Katyal, who actually authored those regulations and has since stated that General Barr has overstepped his authority. What are we dealing with here? Well, we're dealing with a lot. Uh, The first thing is uh, how fast this memo came. Uh, It takes me months to write a four-page memo. Uh, It takes me even longer to get it out and reviewed and edited. The attorney general, uh, we suspect, had had some of this in mind already. Uh, He may have only received the Mueller uh, full report uh, last Friday. But... Uh, you have the feeling based on the quick turnaround that um, much of the, the machinations and, and some of the, the planning had already started. Uh, the final uh, outcome of this, uh, which according to the president exonerates him fully for doing anything, uh, is one side of this. It seems like a great exaggeration to say that this was an exoneration because the actual words used in the memo don't say that at all. Uh, they seem to suggest that the claims of a conspiracy uh, with Russia, with with foreign agents, uh, and uh, the then candidate Donald Trump uh, and his senior leadership uh, was not the case. Uh, that's a legal argument uh, that they based on the evidence they collected over those past two years on a pretty narrow legal question. And so we're now left to consider that the answer to that narrow legal question. But in addition, all of the other questions that remain that the Mueller investigation didn't approach really at all. 
Yes, and and we have this uh, overall demand by Democrats to release the full report to Congress and the public. And just today, the New York Times has reported that the report is more than 300 pages long, according to the Attorney General, with some now questioning that a four-page summary letter was really insufficient as to what he may have even left out. Uh, if you're talking about over 300 pages. Yeah, if this is just 300 pages, I would be shocked. If you ever read a law review article, they are not 300 pages, but somewhat close to that. Uh, the length of this is, I think, a uh, indication of the thoroughness of the Mueller team in uh, interviewing uh, hundreds of people and looking at, um, I'm, I'm not sure how many documents, but a massive amount uh, of uh, work went into this. Uh, whether we ultimately see all, uh, some, or very little of this report, I think is going to play out as a political rather than a legal question. Uh, there is polling to suggest that most Americans, Democrats and Republicans, uh, believe that they have a, a right uh, to see the report uh, with uh, the redactions that are needed to, to protect the uh, sensitive material. I suspect that, that we will, and I, and I suspect it's not going to be that long before we do get the report. I think there are political reasons why the attorney general ultimately doesn't want this to drag out. I think there's also clear reasons why Democrats don't want this to drag out. So I would suspect that within the next couple of weeks, we will see the vast majority of the report, 300 pages, 400 pages, who knows how long. Uh, it's going to be a long read, and it's going to tell us a lot. Uh, about the way in which the Mueller team looked at the evidence, the evidence, some of the evidence that they gathered, and why they reached the decision that they reached. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, in Democracy 101 principles, I just want to, you know, share this with our audience, is like, you know, given that I've worked on democracy development around the world, one of the ma main uh, principles that's emphasized uh, is full transparency, full transparency, and there is no way the American public will ever know and have full confidence in the government without uh, this report being put into not only the congressional record, but shared. And as a matter of fact, someone made a point today on Twitter that the Kenneth Starr report on Bill Clinton is actually available on Amazon. You can buy it. Uh, you know, so I, I think until that report is is made public, it will actually raise questions about the motives of the attorney general himself, uh, and more broadly, uh, the the administration and yeah. what it did or did not do. Right, and I think one of the things that we've learned over the, 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 the period of time that this has happened is that transparency is not the main principle that the Trump administration uh, makes policy and, and implements policy and does their work as, as the head of the executive branch. Uh, there are countless examples where the practices of transparency that were such a norm of previous administrations are simply not a part of, of uh, the, the, the way of working of, of this administration. And I think that's part of the frustration a lot of people have with the Mueller report. And ultimately what's, what's happened is um, even though the, the, the final decision appears to be that there was uh, no conspiracy uh, that, that was, that was um, uh, determined, all of the obfuscation, uh, the, the sort of consistent lack of transparency at so many different stages of this leaves many to believe why. Uh, why be so non-transparent? 
Uh, why obfuscate if there was no conspiracy that happened? Uh, if there was no collusion, uh, why all of the changing of, of, of uh, uh, statements? Why all of the backtracking? Why all the retelling of story? Why all the apparent obstruction uh, that, that appears to have gone on? Why if there wasn't some, uh, something going on? So I think that's the, the question that remains in, in most Americans, Democrats and Republicans. Why? why? Why hasn't this been more transparent? Well, I mean, certainly a lot of people are going to jail for lying about their meetings with Russians. A lot of people. Uh, absolutely. And this is, this is why the, the report that came out of the, the Mueller team, uh, and it's the, the memo that we have now read uh, about it, really only covers one, one question. Uh, there were countless other questions that have been answered over the last two years, and, and those involve uh, whether uh, the, some of the people who were running the campaign, including Paul Manafort and Rick Gates, were committing crimes. And uh, it appears as though they had, had committed crimes and continued to commit crimes as the campaign went. That only covers the, the, the legal issues. Um, there are even greater ethical questions that those working in the campaign have never really answered for. It's those ethical questions that I think um, uh, raise so many political questions moving ahead. Can we have campaigns? Can we transition between administrations with such lax ethical uh, behavior on the part of some of the most significant people in the country? That we haven't really had an answer for. Yes. Well, I think that um, one one um, Twitter uh, really well-known lawyer, Seth Abramson, who's on Twitter, uh, just tweeted out, uh, I think like 48 hours ago, that there are 20 federal and state jurisdictions where uh, the Trump businesses or the Trump campaign uh, is involved in in investigations, grand juries, and uh, trials. Twenty, absolutely. I mean, when the when the final report, not authored by Robert Mueller, but by, offered by someone else, actually writes the history of this administration, uh, that's going to make up a large portion of it. the The legacy of the Trump campaign and the Trump administration is going to be as much those cases as it will be this four-page memo. Uh, when the history is written, someone is going to have to answer, answer for the fact uh, that, that all of these campaign officials, and not just campaign officials, also uh, officials that were appointed uh, once the president took office, uh, have so often skirted the rules, uh, raising so many questions of conflict of interest, uh, raising so many uh, questions about um, influence peddling, uh, if nothing else, this administration has proven that we have a system of government with, with a need for a lot of reform on those very questions. Does, does money buy influence? The, the answer to that question for the Trump administration has been quite, quite clearly yes. Has it done so always in an illegal way? Probably not. And that's because the rules that we have set up allow for that to happen. Yes, and I, and I think that probably the most egregious to date uh, finding that's been uh, – offered, rendered, has been in the Southern District of New York with uh, with regard to Mr. Trump's private, former private attorney, Michael Cohen, who pled guilty to uh, 
participating in, in essence, in denying information to the public by paying off two women on behalf of Mr. Trump, who allegedly had affairs with these two women. And this is where Mr. Trump could have his greatest exposure, legal exposure, because that issue has not been completely uh, addressed. I think that's right. Uh, This is also something that took place before the president took office. Uh, It seems that it is highly unlikely that the president will be uh, charged with anything prior to uh, his leaving office. What happens in two years from now or or six years from now? We really don't know. Um, But these are are cases that will not simply end because the uh, current attorney general issued a four-page memo exonerating the president of a certain narrow set of things. There are uh, dozens, as you allude to, dozens of unanswered legal questions that remain. And and, uh, I'm sure that if if people keep looking, there will be lots more. Uh, The president has not had a track record of of running a a, a clean uh, business that has always um, uh, adhered to the the letter of the law. Uh, I think there are lots of investigations to come. Yeah, so I think I want to make one more point about the Mueller report before we we talk about general politics, but that is there's been um, contrasts pointed out between the standards for a crime and the standards for uh, what you would call high crimes uh, and misdemeanors according, you know, under the auspices of the office of the president. So it appears that Mr. Mueller, making the decisions that he made, uh, was striving for a clear indication of a crime that could withstand uh, a jury review and could deliver a conviction, and he was unable to do that. And it seems like that comes also from a counterintelligence investigation by the FBI, which is different from a criminal investigation. They have different standards about what looks bad, what could be bad, uh, and what is actually a crime. So I think a lot of people have been talking about this, particularly on television. They've been talking about the difference between the standards for conviction of a crime versus what is discovered through a counterintelligence uh, investigation. And secondly, uh, a lot of people are saying, pundits, Uh, and people who are lawyers that comment on TV that there's more than enough information available right now that could be used in impeachment if there was political uh, will to do so. Yeah, I mean, this is one of the, the those times, and it happens just about every day, that I'm glad I didn't go to law school because... I don't have to comment on this because sure. these are these are deeply legal questions. Right. But the end of your question, I think, is is the one that we're at right now, which is ultimately the process of, of uh, impeachment is a political process uh, involving a very different and almost undefined uh, process uh, to weigh evidence. Uh, this is not the process one would see uh, in, in a typical court. Uh, the uh, the standards of evidence, the burden of proof is is not what uh, would be typically upheld in, in, a, in a federal courthouse. For that reason, there are huge risks and huge uncertainties connected to uh, uh, the uh, possibility of impeachment. I think it's one of the reasons why 
um, House Democrats and, and Speaker Pelosi have had such um, uh, so little interest in even having a conversation about that uh, because I think their, their strong impression is that unless the case is so convincing that not just in a uh, legal sense but in a political sense, all sides of the political spectrum would come to agreement, unless that's the case, it's just not something, uh, a road they're willing to go down. I think it's because the processes are so very different that uh, Speaker Pelosi has, has expressed so little interest in it. Yes. I mean, and some people are now saying because she made this announcement, really, she said she called it news. Listen up. Uh a lot of people are saying now, well, she was really prescient. She was really prescient. Um, it seems, though, that she's definitely given cover to her chairs, and there are six committees in the House that are investigating the administration. Um, but is this not going to become a balancing act for the Democrats as we get closer and closer to the beginning of the primaries next year? Well, I guess it depends on which which balancing act you're talking about. I assume that all of the uh, relevant uh, congressional committees are going to do the work of investigating uh, the issues under their jurisdiction. Uh, and carrying out oversight as as stipulated to by the U.S. Constitution. You know, this is this is what Congress uh, does. Um, whether whether there is pressure placed on those committee chairs. Um, by candidates running for office uh, seems to me at this point something that is inevitable. How that pressure comes down is, is uh, what is what is unclear. Um, if the, the main thrust of the, the primary debates and primary conversation uh, is about whether or not uh, impeachment uh, uh, should be the direction forward, uh, I think that then um, the, these committee chairs will be put in, in a, a really tough position. I suspect that's not going to be the case. I, I don't suspect that any of the uh, presidential candidates, that is the Democratic presidential candidates, have a lot to gain from that conversation and from that debate. I don't, I don't see how that plays out for any individual candidate, and I also don't see how that's a particular win uh, uh, for the Democrats. And so my gut tells me that they're going to steer far from that and focus on the much more mundane uh, uh, potential crimes that have been uh, committed, both of the ethical but also of the legal variety, uh, by members of the administration, um, cabinet officials whose behaviors have, have um, if they haven't crossed a line, uh, certainly raised uh, some of the suspicions uh, about corruption. Uh, I suspect that that's going to be the direction that most of them take because that fits much more into the kind of conventional jurisdiction that, that Congress maintains. And so whether or not an interior uh, agency uh, has, has violated ethical rules or, or others is, is going to make up much more of their agenda than an ongoing conversation about whether impeachment is a good or bad uh, idea. Uh, I agree with that. I, I would, I'm suggesting also that the Democrats in the House uh, have about 15, 20 seats that were picked up by moderate Democrats. They won in Trump districts. And they have to have something to deliver to their constituencies as they approach re-election. I mean, so I think, I think I'm not suggesting that 
they're not going to continue to investigate and carry out their oversight, but they they have to be conscious, it would seem, about wanting to deliver something. Look, this is what we did. This is what we did for our constituents. And it also, the reporting indicates that most of the candidates running uh, in the Democratic Party for president, and there's a lot of them, most of them are not talking about the Mueller investigation. That's, this is not something that they're focusing on. They're talking about health care. They're talking about employment. They're talking about uh, the increase in good wages for workers. Uh, they're talking about the bread and butter issues that confront Americans every day. Well, yeah, I think this is right. I mean, 40% of the country doesn't even know who Robert Mueller is. If 40% of the country doesn't know who Robert Mueller is, the chance that they are deeply, deeply connected to uh, the, the um, obscure uh, way in which conspiracy does or does not happen, the way in which coll uh, collusion may or may not have happened, I think seems like an unlikely prospect. Now, as you move from the primaries to the general uh, general election, I think this is likely to change. It's going to shift back. Yeah, and I think bit. that when this becomes a a, a partisan uh, a debate between mm -hmm. a uh, between the president and the eventual Democratic candidate, that's going to change a lot. And and at that point, all of this will come rushing back. But I think until you get to that point, and we're still a long ways away from that. Until you get to that point. I don't think that the, the, the field of Democrats has a whole lot to gain for debating each other about who is the most interested in prosecuting the president for something that the attorney general has, has essentially um, forgiven him for. And so that doesn't seem like the, the, the path that any of these candidates have, have a lot to gain from. That is the, 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 the major candidates, the candidates who have a legitimate chance to actually get the nomination. Sure. And one of the things that uh, happened in, in in the past few days was that the White House press office sent around a memo. I don't know if you heard about this, Heath, but they sent around a memo to all the, the bookers uh, for television and said, these people, you know, accuse the president of being a traitor and you should not put them on your program. And among those was Richard Blumenthal, U.S. Senator from Connecticut. Another one was um, Adam Schiff, who's the House Intelligence Committee chair, uh, among others. And it's really, that's quite a contrast to the Nixon list of enemies, which was a secret, you know, locked up in a safe in the White House. And in, today, in, in today's uh, immediate age, the White House sent out the list of the enemies. What, what do you make of that? You know, I guess I take them as seriously as sometimes they appear to take themselves. Uh, I think that the uh, this this kind of um, game playing is is really what's going on in the White House press office, and they recognize that these are these are people who are uh, clearly opposed to their their uh, opposed to their White House, opposed to their agenda, and they have no expectation that anything's going to be done with this memo other than circulating it through social media mm -hmm. and having right. outlets talk about it. And it's a conversation I think they would be more than glad to have. I think they would love to have a debate about uh, whether or not the statements made over the last 18 months from a handful of members of Congress uh, uh, look good or bad now, given the evidence that we have now at least partially seen. I think that's a debate that they would like to have. And for that reason, 
they don't have an expectation that NBC or CBS or, or any of the other networks is going to change their booking. Uh, and also, I think that they would be perfectly comfortable with, with claiming that, that they were taken seriously maybe when they weren't taken seriously. And if one of these people is not put on the air, they probably will take some credit for that. I, I, I don't suspect that this is anything uh, that they are taking all that seriously. And I think they probably have enjoyed the press that they've already gotten out of simply uh, sending out that memo. It's why they did it publicly rather than did it through the typical channels that you would, which sure. is in a secretive way. So this is a continuation of Mr. Trump's reality TV, I guess, right? I think that I think that that's right. Interesting. So there was, you know, a couple of days where the word exoneration was being thrown around. The president himself said he was completely exonerated, which is not true. Uh, even Barr alludes to the fact that Mueller did not exonerate him uh, with regard to obstruction. So you have this victory, more or less you have a political victory for the president. It, it gives him... There's no alleged collusion, uh, which is actually conspiracy legally. I just want to make that point. So he pivots off of that victory into going after Obamacare. And the uh, Justice Department has announced that they will no longer defend the law in court. And just for our audience to know, it's a standard procedure that successive governments defend laws, even though they may disagree with them, that is the practice of the Department of Justice. So not only are they not going to defend it, but there actually there is a, a case making its way to an appeals court, and we could have a decision fairly soon about whether or not this appeals court affirms the Supreme Court decision of just a few years ago or not. Uh, People who have pre-existing conditions are living on the edge of, you know, tremendous uh, fear that they could lose their health care. Uh, that's that's absolutely right. I, I think that the administration has, has viewed health care in the same uh, partisan polarized uh, lens that they are viewing just about everything. The practices of, of um, and precedent of previous administrations uh, is, is not the basis on which um, many of their decisions are made now. Government uh, is our government is large and complex, and there are any number of parts of government that are continuing the practices of previous administrations. But on highly salient issues like uh, healthcare, right now, uh, there are lots of ways uh, that it makes complete sense for them to depart from precedent and to uh, make the decisions about uh, not defending. Uh, federal law in the way that previous administrations uh, would have. Uh, I think that that's a very risky game to play, uh, not just for the reasons that you raise, but but also for the the longer term political consequences uh, when it actually would play out. Who who would lose uh, coverage and where those uh, people would lose coverage, and for how uninterested I think your your average American is in the Mueller report uh, and and Robert Mueller himself. You have an uh, equally and, and inversely interest in health care. And so um, I think you, you, uh, you, you mess with health care at your own risk. And it's a risk that this administration is willing to take. It's one that I, I, I don't think most people would advise. 
Yes, well, apparently the vice president certainly didn't advise it, according to reporting uh, today, that he strongly advised that they not push for uh, striking the ACA without a replacement. And it's very clear the Republicans have not had a replacement of the ACA, and there's probably no intention of creating one. Yeah, I think the vice president uh, is, is a smart politician and knows that with a strong economy, uh, and a incumbent president, uh, you don't need much more to win re-election than that. Um, decades of, of uh, uh, social science research on what, what, what predicts presidential outcomes suggests that uh, the, the state of the economy and incumbency are two of the biggest predictors of, uh, of winning uh, re-election. Uh, re-election. Yes. And, the, and I think the vice president understands that uh, there's no evidence that taking on people's health care is a basis on which to win in a, a, a re-election. Uh, and I think he recognizes that they could sail into re-election on the basis of a exoneration, uh, a strong uh, economy, and the power of incumbency. And, and his campaign managers don't need much more than that to win re-election. Uh, everything else uh, is, is a potential risk for the president. Now, the president uh, seems willing to take those risks, and, and uh, I think he's probably alone in that within the, the, the uh, uh, advising and advice that he's getting. So um, do you think, back to the Mueller report just for one second, I mean, these, these political risks, he, he really rolls the dice. I mean, the, the Democrats took the House back on health care. They took the House back with the biggest win since Watergate. Since 74, uh, over 9 million, you know, I don't know how many million votes were, were cast, but it was the largest majority of people to, to participate in a midterm election ever. It's just incredible. Um, will the Democrats issue subpoenas for the Mueller report? I don't know that. Uh, that's a that's a legal question that I don't uh, know. I see. Okay. I, but I, what, for, what about from a political? I don't think they're going to have to. I mean, that would suggest uh, that they wouldn't get it. I think they're going to. You think uh, it'll 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 be issued? Oh, I I think almost almost uh, certainly. Yeah, I, I I think that you know the questions about what's redacted and what's not included are going to be the basis of the debate. But I don't think you issue subpoenas for for pages, you know, 100 through 200 when you get another, you know, couple hundred already delivered. I think that they're going to get exactly what they're asking for, which is the report. They're not going to get some of the uh, information included that they want included. And they're going to, you know, raise some hay over that. But the need to subpoena a report that they're very, very likely to get uh, I think we'll never we'll never actually confront that because it just is is going to already be in their hands. Okay, Heath Brown, you said it. Uh, we will have you back uh, when 2020 really heats up. I mean, we're getting closer, uh, and we can talk about who actually has a chance in the Democratic side of the House. I want to thank you for being with us today, Tanya. It's a real pleasure. I hope I get to come back before we get to 2020. But if it, we have to wait until then, I can wait. No, we can do it in the fall. That we can come great. back. That sounds great. Thank you. Thanks for tuning into the Thought Project, and thanks to today's guest, Professor Heath Brown. 
The Thought Project is brought to you with production, engineering, and technical assistance by Sarah Fishman. I'm Tanya Domi. Tune in next week.